Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. Day Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Good morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network. MJ, in memory of my sister, Marcia Joyce, and this is going to be absolutely fantastic. We have the author of Until I Find You Here. What happens when you go to check on your child in the crib and realize the child is not yours? Rebecca has a degenerative eye disease and must convince everyone that it's really not her son that's in the crib. And we have the author here. Good morning, Ria. How are you? And welcome to MJ Network. Thank you. I am doing well, and I'm so happy to be here. Well, before I forget, because I promised I would do this, we have this habit of doing this in my family. I promised my little, I think she's five today, happy birthday, Mm -hmm. Delaney, from your aunt and from everyone. She's so precious, and I hope someday you will be my book partner like your grandpa was. So I hope you have a scrumptious day, and I hope Softa makes you that chocolate cake that she promised you. Have a great day, Delaney, from Cousin Fran. I promised. <laughs> I promised. Oh, that is so sweet. Happy birthday, Delaney. That is so sweet. Yeah, she's, she's too much. So why did you choose to make the main character diagnosed with a degenerative um, disease with her own daughter and her deceased husband? How does, does this death affect both her? Do I have the right page there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I have actually always suffered from terrible vision. I have Mm. um, what's called vitreous detachments. I have astigmatisms. I'm nearsighted. I'm farsighted. Um, And I have always feared losing my vision as a writer. Um, And so I wanted to explore writing a protagonist with a quote-unquote disability because I don't feel like we see that enough in suspense and genre fiction. So I thought it would be super interesting to step into those shoes, kind of play out my worst fears, and then go along this journey with someone who's losing their vision. Well, I wear glasses and nearsighted, farsighted, and whatever, but I have to know yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, no, I love so. glasses. I feel like glasses are so cool now. <laughs> Everybody has glasses. Well, not only that, but I have this thing that every couple of weeks I text my contact at the optometrist's office and I go, like, what do you have that I don't have? So I get a different yeah. pair of glasses for every every couple of weeks. So I have enough for oh, one I every two pairs. Yeah, I got about one for every single day of the week or maybe more. What can I say? Oh, I want that. So, those, that's, those are my goals. I want those goals. <laughs> yeah. I'm tr- Oh, no wonder I read this one. It's on the back of this. Why is everything in her life based on numbers? Yeah, so when I was doing my research about vision-impaired people, um, a lot of them have tics, 
they, you know, some of them tap, some of them sway. Um, they all have different kicks that kind of help them. And I chose numbers for her, for her counting steps, you know, and really um, controlling her environment that way. Um, because I thought it would be somewhat visual. Like if you're a reader, you can connect easily with that. That's something you can imagine. And mm. I wanted to just give her what's called her blindism, where, you mm. know, counting steps, um, it's just her thing as a vision impaired person. That's interesting. So what happens every time she goes outside? Yeah, I mean, Rebecca Gray is blessed with photographic memory, <laughs> so that's one good thing. So she's had her sight, and she's slowly losing it. But, yeah, every time she goes outside, you know, she can see the landscape in her mind. Um, mm. But at the beginning of the book, she's she's kind of becoming increasingly paranoid, like thinking she might be, you know, being followed. Um, she's really tired. She's a new mother, you know, she might be experiencing a little bit of postpartum and her husband is dead and her mother has died. So grief is really playing into this. So everything in her world is a little unstable, a little unsteady. So counting those steps and focusing on what she can control is really important, especially when she's going outside. And, you know, I when I was writing this book, I actually went to Elmhurst, Illinois, where this is um, – where this book takes place and I had my husband lead me around blindfolded because I wanted to literally step into her shoes and see what would this feel like? I mean, she's not completely blind, so she has a little bit of vision, but it was the most unstable thing I've ever done. Like I immediately felt vulnerable. I immediately was like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to step off the road into traffic. Um, It was really really interesting and of course I didn't have a baby with me but um but I wanted to know what it would be like to be you know someone who has really lost their vision and just has to get on with it and have to be a mom and live her life so it's, it's very interesting I love doing the immersive experience with that my grandmother I never realized had cataracts but it was so bad that she was mm-hmm. blind and she mm-hmm. used to, I used to walk with her, and she used to count her steps. And yeah. I don't know how I don't know how she baked and cooked and did everything without killing her, breaking her hand or cutting something. But she somehow no, yeah, yeah. It, it's scary, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's really is, interesting. I mean, all the yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's it's scary. I, the vision is your is your life. Without that, forget that. I know. Yeah, but all of the vision impaired people I talked to were so, like, cool about it. I mean, they were like, no. I mean, people who were born blind, they were like, you couldn't pay me money to have my sight. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And they were like, you know, you know what a rainbow looks like because you see it or the sun looks like or, you know, whatever. And I, I get to use my imagination. I can create whatever I want in my mind's eye. And that's my reality. And I think, like, the more people I talk to, it's amazing how your body just adapts and adjusts when you lose um, one of your senses. And Mm -hmm. it it was was such a positive conversation with all of these vision-impaired people. They were so positive about their lives, and, and they weren't really missing anything. So I thought that was really really interesting and, and kind of cool to, to talk about and see how positive they were. 
So why does she have an accident and hits her head? And when does she realize that the child in a crib is not hers? Because no one wants to believe yeah. her. That's scary. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, she when she's at the park, um, she's at the park with her friends. She's not sleeping very well. She's super tired again, super paranoid. And when she stands up, she just stands up too fast and falls and, and hits her head. Um, and it's not until later she goes to her friend's house to get her head looked at. Um, her friend walks her home with her baby and it's like, don't worry about it. I have Jackson. You go upstairs, take a sleeping pill, go to sleep, get some rest. And it's not until she gets up later and it's at night that she hears this baby cry. And when she goes upstairs, again, counting those steps, going to the crib, reaching in, she realizes immediately that that's not her child. And just being a mom, I think that would be, you know, we all hear about kidnappings, but to actually have a baby that isn't yours, I mean, hospital swaps happen um, quite regularly, actually, like in the hospital, but being outside of the hospital and and realizing that, I think it could be one of the scariest things as a parent to to realize or to think that this child is not yours. And she was clever enough to realize it because how many people with degenerative eye disease would even, they try to convince her that she was wrong. So she calls exactly. Jeff and Officer Toby, and they don't believe her, and I'm saying she's telling the truth. She's, I'm yelling at the book. She's telling the truth. Yep. I, you know, and, and the, yeah, I um. The reason I, I even wanted to do this or talk about, you know, a, a blind woman who believes her son's been swapped and no one will believe her, I started talking to cops mm-hmm. about how blind, like, crimes, not that this is a, a, a crime necessarily, but how they are treated. Um, and it is not good, like, a lot of times because they can't really show proof. Um, like, there's been a lot of blind people who have been robbed or you know, just, just some horror stories, but because they can't visually prove what's happened, oftentimes they're written off. And I think for mm-hmm. her, she's had a couple close calls um, before, like where she thought her house was broken into, and she made a big scene at this party. And, and you know, she's the, the public, her friends, her community think she's just grieving, she's tired. And she's mistaken. And if you ever look at pictures of babies, like three-month-old babies, I did a lot of research. I'm like, I'm going to look at three-month-olds. They change so quickly, and they all kind of look alike. And, I mean, not all of them look alike, but I think if you're a friend and you don't see that child every single day, it might might be possible to to be like, well, I, I don't know if that's her child. Um, So it was just a really interesting premise to even play with. Well, it was original because I've read, I can't even tell you how many thousands of books I've read. And I'm serious. Mm-hmm. And some, sometimes I read them and I go, I think root canal is more fun than this. And oh, that's no. even worse. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Lately, I've been oh, like, no. I don't write negative reviews, but sometimes I go like, oh, what did I do wrong? Please help me. Sure. Um, so she, there was a movie with, I think it was Rosalind Russell with Gaslighting. Gaslighted. So what mm. makes her think she's being gaslighted and paranoid? I mean, people do that to yeah. other people. You don't. Know, not only with that, but anything. It's scary. 
Right. I mean, I think, you know, I really wanted to touch upon, like, a mother always knows. Like, it just we just know. Yeah. Like, we know when something's up with our children. And so when everybody doesn't believe her, but she really, truly knows, because she, she has memorized her son. Like, she knows that he has eczema behind his ears. She knows there's a little notch in his collarbone, like, where he got stuck during labor. So she knows his cry. She knows his smell. And she just knows, and no one, everyone's trying to convince her that she's she's mistaken, she's paranoid, she's tired. So I think this, you know, as a mother, you have to decide, like, how you, how you handle that. But handling that without your vision, when, if she could just see, she could easily prove, like, this is not my son, period, in this story. Um, so it really causes her to kind of separate a little bit from her community and and follow her intuition. Now, now we have an interesting character. Tell us about Crystal and her relationship with her own daughter and her deceased husband. How does this affect both her and Savvy? Here's what gets yeah, interesting, so people. Is, yeah, Crystal is, so the, the book is told in two points of view. Back to the main character and Crystal, who is a friend of hers. Um, they met at grief group. Crystal has lost her husband, and she has a daughter, Savvy, who's kind of a musical prodigy, and Rebecca is um, a former cello player and gives lessons to Savvy. So they really hit it off and kind of understand each other because they've both lost their husbands. They're both, you know, widows. They're both grieving. So Rebecca, even though she doesn't know Crystal that well, she kind of comes to really trust her and rely Mm. on her as a confidant and friend. Well, why does she need a nanny, and why does she seem too dependent on her? And of course, I played the violin or the cello. I love I love string instruments, and she interacts yeah. with her during her. Why does she also try magic? That was, that was really unique. Yeah. So I mean, Sammy's a really interesting kid who's into all sorts of things, yeah. and Crystal is Crystal's not a very she's not a very involved mom. She does have yeah. a nanny for Savvy because she works a lot. She's a single mom and Savvy's not yet old enough to, you know, stay home alone all the time. It's summer. She's not started school yet. Um, but yeah, Savvy's a very curious, precocious kid. She is a bit of a, a musical genius and she also gets mm-hmm. into, into magic. Um, my daughter kind of went through, my daughter's nine now, but she kind of went through a brief spell of that, which is really funny and, and trying to, you know, showcase all of her magic tricks. So um, mm-hmm. it was just fun to pull a little bit from, from reality for that. That made it even more interesting. So what <laughs> happens when Rebecca's house is broken into again and once again has Officer Toby not once but three times and they still don't believe her. They won't put out an Amber Alert. That's even scarier. Yeah. Um, again, I mean, I think she's kind of like the woman who cried <laughs> wolf because she's had a yeah. couple of of weird little instances and incidents that this officer keeps having to show up, and there's no evidence of anything really. Like nothing is is really wrong, so they think she is just kind of losing it and and might be really suffering from postpartum and heavy grief and paranoia which is infuriating Rebecca knows you know something 
is going on, that her son is gone, and they're just not doing anything to help. So it's um, it's also a small community. The police chief doesn't want to, you know, he wants everything to be status quo, and and mm. so it it causes a lot of a lot of um, discord, especially for Rebecca and her life, and she feels really on her own. Well, tell us the problem with the chief of police, and why does she reach out to Jake, and why does he come? Thank God. Yeah, so, so um, yeah, the police chief, like, again, he never wants to, he loves to maintain that Elmhurst, Illinois, is this, like, perfect community, no crime ever happens, nothing bad ever happens, like, it's just a perfect little idyllic place to live, so he's very hesitant to make a big deal about this without proof. So Rebecca has an ex-boyfriend, Jake, who also happens to be a detective. He's moved back to mm. Chicago, and she's she's about the only person she thinks that she can reach out to and, and trust who might believe her and might help her along the way. So she reaches out to him to see if he can help. So these things get tense, and she rebuffs and pushes aside the help she needs to find her son. How come? Yeah, I mean, in terms of, um, I mean, she she doesn't, she offers help where, where she can get it with Jake. I mean, she's hoping he can help, you know, find some sort of evidence. But she she really feels kind of on her own and wants to get, like, a DNA test and wants to do all of these things. And there's just a specific protocol um, that she has to wait on. So a lot of this book, she feels like she kind of has to do things her own way while she's waiting for mm. some sort of sign or evidence to to validate, like, what she knows to be true. So tell us about, we talked about Crystal, but tell us about Beth, Jess, and Caroline, and for all intents and purposes, why do they appear that they want to help her? Yeah, so she has this little group of mom friends, and for Rebecca, um, you know, being vision impaired, from everyone I talk to, like, if you don't have a group of other vision impaired friends, it can be kind of hard to really relate. But she has these, this group of moms that she's kind of come to, to rely on and trust, but she realizes very quickly, with the exception of Jeff, like, these aren't probably the friends she really thought they were and they don't really understand her um, because they're questioning her. They're questioning if she is mistaken. And I wanted to kind of show too, like how, you know, I feel like we're all very self-involved. We're on our phones. We're not really paying attention as much as we should be, both to our kids, to ourselves, (laughs) to our friends. And I wanted to, to showcase how people can, form opinions based on what other people are saying and and not really, like, looking too hard for the truth because we're all just in a constant state of distraction. I get in trouble because I'm constantly looking for the truth. And I won't stop until I find it. I I get yelled at a a lot. Yeah, I I like to know what happens. (laughs) And and until I find the truth, I'm going to drive people crazy. If I don't get the answer to yep. the question, I'll find somebody that's going to answer it. So why is this, what is the significance of the footprint? And what happens at the hospitals two times, at the two hospitals that might help her? Because she's, she's smart yeah. in her own way. 
Yeah. When I, when it was funny when I was, you know, trying to come up with this plot, quite frankly, I was like, oh my gosh, like he, it would be so easy to figure out who this kid is. Like a lot of hospitals now do this electronic footprint. So, you know, used to, they would do the ink um, with their little footprint, but now they're, they have these machines that when your child is born, they do this kind of like electronic footprint and your child's information goes into the system. And so if there is a missing person's report, like that data is there. And I was like, great, that would be a very easy way to prove that this isn't her son. But if that happens early in the book, there'll be no book. So when she goes to try to um, get the footprint the first time, there's an issue with the machine. There's like a recall on the machine. So she has to wait. And and again, the the whole plot is over like three days. I mean, it's, you know, almost a 300 page book that literally takes place in a very, very short period of time. So it's actually not that long where, you know, she is able to get the information that she needs. But, um, yeah, when she first goes, there's, a, there's an issue with the machine, and the machine doesn't work, and she has to wait on one so she can, she can find out the truth. No one gets me, and you have, to fall, you have to endear yourself to her, is that this other child... She could have very easily called, I mean, I dealt with social services with children in my work mm-hmm. with. She could have very easily let social services take them into custody because it's not her. Yeah. Why does lying become part of her daily routine at times, and why didn't she allow them, and I don't blame her, for taking for taking him? I don't blame her at all. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I think, like, if you're a mom and you have, you know, number one, your child's gone, which is horrible, but you have this other child and handing this innocent little being over, not really knowing what's going to happen to him. And I think, honestly, in the back of her mind, too, she is thinking he might be a little bit of leverage. You know, if she has this child and someone has her child, you know, I don't think she wants to give up that child at all. And, you know, maybe the tiniest part of her, too, like when I was creating this, because everyone's doubting her, she might have the teeniest little bit of doubt, like, oh, my God, what about if I am mistaken and this is my child? Then, of course, she's not going give to him, give him up. But I think, I think it's just that mother's protectiveness kicks in, even though, you know, she knows it's not her kid. Um, but she doesn't want to give him up um, until she has her son back. I don't blame her. She's, she's a, the parent of this child is lucky that she didn't do that. She probably never would yeah. have seen him again. I mean, after dealing with child services, I know how it, how they work, and they don't work very well at times. So right. Rebecca does research to try to find out information on how to get the footprint of this other child. How does she resourcefully get that, and what does she find out? Yeah, so... Um I mean, without giving, like, you know, yeah, we don't want too to give much away. away. Um, yeah, she, um, I mean, again, she does, you know, research on just the company who makes this footprint. And, I mean, her child had a footprint. So she knows if she can go in and be like, oh, there was an issue with my son's footprint. We moved from Chicago to Elmhurst. I need, I need to get him rescanned because she knows the moment she scans this child. His and either his information is going to come up or he's not in the system, but it will validate that he is not Jackson. So yeah. um, later in the 
later in the book, Jake, you know, is like, oh, Chicago's, Chicago's got, you know, their machine is up and running, and that's when they go, and she is finally able to, to get his footprint scanned. I wonder if anybody in real life would ever do what she did just to protect somebody else's child that you don't know. That that is yeah. that is you know like that's endearing. That's why I love Rebecca. So what happens each time she sees Crystal and her daughter, and how do we know that Savi, she needs help, and why is Pam yeah. the core of her action? She can't seem to be without her, her nanny. Why is it? And she defends her. I want to smack yeah. her in the head. I'm, yeah, I mean, um, I think you know Savi is a very troubled child. She yeah. lost her father. Um, there's some there's some secrecy going on in her own household. There's a lot of like manipulation and just unhealthy mother daughter um, uh, unhealthy mother daughter relationship going on. And this this nanny, you know, she kind of comes to know and trust, but also there's a again a little bit of manipulation going on there. Savvy starting to act yeah. out. She cuts her hair off, she sets a fire, she's she's a troubled young yeah. child and so Pam is there kind of as a kind of as a, a buffer and a protector because Crystal just she's she's busy trying to cover up some things in her own life and it's that family is just a bit of a mess and has a bunch of, of secrets and darkness going on and this this um, nanny's kind of kind of in the middle of all of it. So Rebecca's friends just uh this is really weird, well different. They decide to have a vigil. Why? And what happens? What changes everything at the vigil? Yeah, so it's funny when I was writing this, I kept seeing like visual I always write I, I think visually so I kind of see it on a screen and you know, they wanted to have a, the community that the community of Elmhurst in real life is very, very supportive. Like I lived in mm-hmm. Chicago. I have good friends in Elmhurst and it's just the kind of thing that they would do for this child um, and this mother and just holding a vigil, seeing if they can get, you know, any information um, and still supporting her in kind of like a backwards way. But Rebecca shows up at the vigil having gotten the footprint and like, you know, the crowd kind of parts, she goes up to this podium and, you know, reveals that Mm -hmm. this child that she has is not her son and she has proof and that kind of changes everything. This is a standalone, right? Or is it more coming? It is a standalone. No, it's a standalone. All, all my um, books are standalones. Um, but yeah, yeah, this is this is all on its own. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I know they, they email me. I don't know if you know how I get these things. They email me and tell no. me you're going to do this. I go, I am. Somebody <laughs> wants to be on your radio show. You're going to do this. I'm serious. I think in all That's the hilarious. years, very seriously, I think only once I said no way. Uh uh-uh. uh Yeah. Um, I wow. won't read porn and I won't read erotica and I'm very careful about what I read and then. I've gotten a lot of emails recently from people on LinkedIn saying, oh, I'd like to come on your radio show. Can I come on? I go, can I read your work? If I can't read your work and validate it, not going to happen. So I only validate, I only take people's work that I think is, you know, four and a half, five stars, or not going to happen. I won't put my name on just anything. So 
I like Jake. How does Jake try to center her and help her? And sometimes she pushes him away. I want to smack her in the head. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Rebecca's got a lot of pride, and I think that comes from being a perfectionist, having kind of living a somewhat charmed life, and then her career gets taken away, her vision gets taken away, her husband gets taken away, her mother gets taken away, and then her baby gets taken away. So, like, her pride is pretty much the only thing she has left. And I wanted that to be her major flaw is, like, hey, these people are offering to help you, and you're still pushing them away. And, like, that's the change that I wanted her to have throughout the novel was realizing, like, it's okay to ask for help. Like, she doesn't even have a guide dog, which would be so helpful to her because she, like, doesn't want one more thing to take care of. And she's just very, very proud and but Jake is there. I mean, he's a homicide detective in Chicago. He's got his own cases to work on. And I have to, I have to say this. In the first draft, so I wrote a very different book. This was a very mm-hmm. different book. It was much more of, like, a thriller. Um, Jake was bad. Like, he was the villain in this. And he was a very, very different character. So when I had to, to rewrite it, um, I, wa- I wanted him to kind of, like, just be there for her and offer help um, in the ways that he could. But they have such a, they have such a, a you know, storied past, and there's still a lot of love between them that I think for Rebecca, even throughout all this, she feels like it's a betrayal to her dead husband if yeah. she accepts, like, too much help from him because um, she's a loyalist as well, like through and through um, much to her detriment. So she's just dealing, she's dealing with a lot. I think she's very confused. She's exhausted and, and just wants to get her son back and isn't making the best decisions in the world. Well, that happens. That makes sense. If she was too perfect, it would not, the novel would be boring. Yeah. Uh, you have to have mistakes and flaws. <laughs> and if a character is too perfect, I go like, give me a break. It's, it's, there's no such person as a perfect person except maybe us, but we don't know that. We don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, how does she manage to get around? Why do so many people want to help her? And why do they think, they might be right, that she needs therapy with, this, with some help, somebody to talk to? Yeah. I mean, so she gets around you know, um, by herself, like she has her cane, like with this, you know, she brings Jackson's stroller along and she pulls it instead of pushing it. And um, I, I really talk to a lot of um, vision impaired mothers and just like how they yeah. do it and how they navigate day to day. But yeah, and, sorry, what was the second part of that question? What do they think that she needs some help? Oh, yeah. So she she is again, she has she lost her mother, but her her husband has only he got um, hit by a car uh, a year prior, um, Mm. about a year prior to, you know, when the book starts. And she is not like, yes, she's going to grief group, but being a mom, you just have to you have to just move on and you have to live for your child. And I think a lot of her friends see how tired she is. She's doing it on her own. She won't get a nanny. She won't get a guide dog. She just mm-hmm. is so stubborn that I think they they think she needs some some help and some therapy to really deal with everything that she's lost. And then with a couple of scenes in the beginning of the book with her her paranoia and these run-ins where the cops keep having to get called, like they think that she's just 
not thinking clearly and needs some professional help, which she probably well, does. Everybody, well, she needs somebody to talk to. So what is Serta Scan? Yeah. What does that do? How, do? how did that help her or not help her? So the Serta Scan is the footprint. Um, that's the, the footprint yeah. machine. Um, and, again, I, I researched a lot about that. Um, not every hospital has that, but they do have it in in Chicago. And and that's kind of the key. I mean, that, that ends up being the key to identifying whose baby she actually has. And then, you know, hopefully that will lead to getting her son back. Well, what happens when she learns who the child belongs to and she won't give him up. And why does social no, services I mean, I, allow yeah. her to keep the child? I was impressed with that. Because how many in real life would yeah, really better I mean, keep because it's not hers? Right. I mean, she ends up having to, to give him up, you know, at the, at the end. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think she feels like knowing that she's validated, knowing who this child is, and I don't think she's, she's willing again to give him up and and again the book is a very condensed timeline like she ends up having him i don't even know for like a few more hours or something like before he's finally taken away but i think she is she's developed a bond with this child and you know again in real life sure social services might have just snatched they him wouldn't. up and taken him away and um they wouldn't yeah um but but I wanted to show that what kind of mother she is, even though you don't get to really see her being a mom to her own son in the book, but she still was so good to this child, was loyal to him, um, and just felt a, an actual bond to this baby. Well, I wonder how the real mother felt. I mean, didn't the mother, real mother realize that he was missing, that her son was gone, or didn't she care? So the real the real mother is actually dead. Um, she mm, she died. Um, and, yeah, and she was very young and left this baby on someone else's doorstep. Um, and again, not to give like too much away, but yeah, that's so sad. the baby. Yeah, very sad. Um, and so yeah, this baby is kind of from the beginning of his life, just very unwanted, um, very just kind of a, a nuisance and something to hide and something not to take care of. So he wasn't even really treated like a human. So Rebecca, who's not his mother, kind of gave him the first bit of motherly love that he's had in his, his little life. So so how does learning the truth about him, how does it change it for her? Well, it changes everything because then the police are behind her, the community is behind her, and they just want to try to figure out not only who's, like, whose son this is, but where yeah. her baby is. And everyone's just floored. Um, and that's, that scene at the vigil really changes everything where the officer Toby is like, oh, my God, like, you know, she was right. And, and then, boom, you know, they actually start doing their jobs. Um which is really unfortunate because, again, if she had been a sighted woman, I don't think any of this would have ever happened. I think it's just because she was blind, she yeah. was treated in a completely different way. Well, before I forget, tomorrow, psychotherapist Dennis Palumbo and guess who, me, we're going to take on panic attacks and anxiety disorder, what causes them, how you deal with them, and how you know you have it. This should be interesting. 
On Monday, the 23rd, Alan Jacobson, The Lost Girl. I'm going to skip the 25th for just a minute. On the 30th, the author of Through the Door. And on the 1st, the one and only Brian Freeman, The Born Treachery. He took on the uh, Jason Bourne series. Oh, it's fantastic. On Um, August 25th, I am honored. I'm going to be a little nervous about this one. Um, I have a second master. I have three and a half masters. I have three masters on a PD. My second master's is in reading, and the professor that taught me how to understand what all of you read and understand the deep meaning will be on my broadcast on the 25th. Dr. George Cavuto has agreed to talk about the medicalization of education. I know what it is, and we're going to talk about the different learning disabilities and why mainly classroom teachers need to learn how to assess children and address the needs of every child and more. So I am totally pumped and honored. That's going to be so fantastic that he's honoring mm-hmm. me. And, yeah, he put me through my paces for 15 weeks, but that's okay. So, yeah, I, I was, like, surprised that he said yes. He's surprised he remembered me. So why does she not when she finds out? Yeah, it's amazing. Why does she not want to press charges when she finds out who, who's behind this? And how does she rationalize yeah. it without saying who it is? Right. I, you know, I think that I also wanted to show kind of the theme of, again, she's loyal, she's a loyalist, but the theme of friendship, and she's actually really thinking about the baby and also, um, well, yeah, I can't really say without giving away everything, but she's she's really thinking about the children in this situation, and if she presses charges, these kids are going to go into the system, and she doesn't want that for them. She hopes that um, there can be some sort of rehabilitation and really, you know, just everyone moving on with their lives. But it's a real, it's a real blow to her personally with what happens in the end and yeah. how her, some of her friendships break up. And um, But through it all, Rebecca actually does realize that she does need help. She realizes her mistakes and that she has to change if she's going to live, you know, uh, an embodied, like, successful life. Well, you can't always be so trustworthy. you got to be a little uh, skeptical in this true. world. <laughs> yeah. I uh, learned that, too. today. Oh, my gosh. Don't yeah. we all? Um, yes. Yes. A hundred percent. But, you know, you also have to trust your instincts and your intuition. And I feel like a lot of times we we second guess that. Yeah. So so how do the police feel and Jake feel when she decides not to press charges? Because most people in their right mind would say, you're going to you're going to go away for this, what you did. Exactly. Yeah, you know, Rebecca didn't press charges for the driver who hit her husband because she realized yeah. that's not going to bring her husband back. And so it's kind of the same in this situation. I mean, I think police, the police definitely want, you know, quote unquote justice to be served, but she doesn't want that. She just wants to move on with her life. She wants the other parties to move on with their lives. And um, but yeah, the police, I think, you know, they always want to get to get their version of a happy ending, and when she doesn't press charges, I think they're a little surprised. Well, what I, that's amazing because what would prevent this person from doing it again? That's what would worry me. Is that yeah, the I mean, I, doing it needs some help too. Right, right. The person who who did this definitely needs some help, but it wasn't 
um, we find out that it wasn't a malicious. No, I don't um, think so. There was no malicious intent behind it. It was just um, a very, like, black and white situation <laughs> that this person who made the swap, like, really thought they were doing it for the right reasons. And um, they definitely need some professional help and would hopefully never do anything like that ever again. You never know. So how you could never she know. be sure that how could she be sure that now that this happened that it's not gonna happen again and that her son is safe? I, I would like I would lock the well, doors exactly. Away. Be, Far away. Be, yeah, exactly. Be paranoid. And I mean I feel like in the world we live in today, I mean I wrote this, you know, several years ago now, but um but yeah, so I think that's the whole point of her transformation is she has to trust that her instincts really are right. She doesn't have to be so proud or stubborn. And she ends up getting a guide dog in the end. She ends up letting Jake into her life. She ends up letting her friends help a little more. And um, I think she's, she's willing to trust a little bit more, even though this horrible thing has happened. Is she going to have a relationship with Jake? Is she going to get smart? Oh yeah, God. I mean, I, you know, the the book, it's so funny. Like, I don't usually write in my other two books. There's no, like, true happy endings. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but my editor was like, just give her something. Give her some sort of promise of something good in her life. So the there, it's implied that they're going to kind of like, yeah, take it slow and, and maybe engage in a relationship because they were crazy about each other and, and really loved each other and, and still do. I could see her coming back in another book to help people that are going through the same thing with their eyes. Seriously. Ugh. Yeah, completely. That's just my wacky thought. So this is about understanding, forgiveness, love, relationships, betrayals, deception, and a cry for help. How did you include all of these issues? And that's just some of what I read. Yeah. So I love to write about, like, all of my books, really focus on like parent-child relationships and relationships to our friends and to ourselves and to our families. I like to kind of focus on the themes that we all face in real life and maybe Mm. a little bit more dramatic circumstances, but like morally ask like how you would deal with this issue as a human being. And I love to have the reader kind of question along the way, like, well, what would I do? What do I think about this? And how would I react? Mm-hmm. So that it tends to just be like the themes in, in all of my books. I really like exploring that a little bit more. So how would you describe Rebecca at the beginning? And how does she change or not change at the end? Yeah, so in the beginning, I mean, again, she's tired. She's a little paranoid. She's a little sad, but she's kind of ignoring her emotions um, just to be a good mom and, like, get on with it. And then throughout the book, again, that pride, that stubbornness um, mm. really shows that she also is really trusting herself and trusting her intuition. But by the end of it, she has softened. She has opened up a little bit more. She has asked for help and let a lot of past, like, grief and resentment go. And I think she's a more healed person um, through all that tragedy because she literally almost lost absolutely everything. I mean, she's had so much taken away from her that by the end, I think she's focusing more on what she has mm-hmm. instead of what, what's been taken away, which is hard to do. <laughs> she's lost as much as she has. 
What is your message for readers? Because you know something? You read about this in the news, people stealing kids from hospitals. Yeah. People taking other yep. people. It's not unusual. It's not unusual. Trust me. So what is no, your message it's, it's really for not. readers? Yeah, I mean, I think my message is like, it, it's just two readers as humans, like to really trust your intuition and trust yourself. And I feel like we often outsource and look for answers instead of self-sourcing and like looking within and really thinking about what we know to be true. Mm. And then my, my other message would just be like, mothers really do know. Like we just know. We absolutely know <laughs> when something's not right um, and, and to really trust that intuition. As cliche as that is, like mothers really do know best. <laughs> well, this aunt isn't a mother, but this aunt knows. Trust me. Yes, this aunt, aunt knows. Aunt knows. Totally, completely. As a matter of fact, it's funny because when my nieces have a problem, they call me. Okay, she's going to figure it out, and no one else is going to no one else is going to figure it out as fast as you do. That's because you want me to get oh, you out of trouble. Exactly. <laughs> I'm so jealous that you're an aunt. Like I will never be an aunt yeah. because my husband's brother won't have kids. My brother won't have kids, and I'm like an aunt would be my perfect role. Like I'm born to be an aunt, and I'll never be an aunt, and it's so sad to me. <laughs> Well, my sister passed away quite uh, under unusual circumstances a few years ago, mm. and I looked at her before she died, and I go, "You're leaving me, all of them. How could you do this to me?" Oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah, it, it's it's under under suspicious circumstances that never got settled. Mm. But my oh, niece, no. my niece and I are close, and my nephew is an experience, and my nieces. You know, if there's a problem, they will call me. If they need help with their term papers, they know who's going to help write them. It's fun. Yeah. That's amazing. And, well, that's that's amazing they have you. Yeah, well, I, I have them because they drive me crazy, but that's okay. Besides, <laughs> you know, I'm their shopping partner when they're here. And yes. I love it. Yes. Nothing better. There's nothing like going shopping and then they tell you you get to pay for it. No, it's okay. So how yeah. did you decide <laughs> on the title and the cover of the book? Oh, that wasn't me. Um, so it's so funny. I have never gotten to really have input on um, really a title. Like all my titles have changed. My um, all th- or four of my books actually um, titles have all changed from the working title. This mm-hmm. I loved every cover. This actually was the first cover. I'll be brutally honest. I didn't like it, and I was like, no, I want it to be darker. Mm-hmm. I want it to be. You know, I just want it to be different. And they tweaked a few things, and then it kind of grew on me. But um, as authors, so I run a business for authors as well who want to get published called Right Way. And I'm always in the business of telling the truth about what it's like to be an author and um, really demystifying the publishing industry. But that is a common misconception is, like, you get all this input, and I get say-so into it, and it's not. I mean, they get the final say, and I voice my opinions and concerns, and – and this is, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's it's a business, and they had the ultimate say so. So, um, so yeah, it's it's been very interesting. Um, this next book I have, they changed uh-huh. one word of the title, so I got to keep the main main part of my working t- working title. I was pretty adamant about it, and I'm obsessed with the cover that they came up with. Um, so yeah, it's really just kind of luck like if you know hopefully you'll like it if you don't you can say what you don't like but a lot of times <laughs> at the end of the day the author doesn't get the final say 
When is it coming out? So the next book is called Secrets of Our House. It was supposed to be Secrets of Black House. That was my working title, but they they changed it. Um, so that comes out in February 2022, February 8th, 2022. And this is a little bit different for me. It's a little bit more of a family saga um, uh-huh. than, a, than a domestic suspense novel, but I'm I'm pretty excited about it. You know, sometimes I know I interviewed Iris Johansson last week. And oh, nice. He, yeah, oh, let me tell you. Uh, she's amazing, and she loves me because she says that I give her the questions, and then she deletes the ones she doesn't want to answer. And she won't oh give God. away a lot, but uh, she was on for yeah. an hour. She was amazing. I did two books that she read. Her was The Bullet and High Stakes. She has total input on the cover and the title. Amazing. You don't mess That's with awesome. Iris. And she always yeah. picked something that's perfect. It, it, it fits. Yeah. And I'm honored that she thinks I'm wonderful. That she's gonna. That she's you know gonna do this again probably very soon. But how do you decide, or do they decide? I mean, this is a traditional publisher. This is not an independent yeah, or. Is, no, this is one of the big one of the big boys. Yeah. <laughs> so what is? I mean, how do you decide on your main character? How do you decide? Who are you going to write about? Because that's the hardest thing for me. Oh, 100%. So when I, um, quick quick backstory, I got a a novel traditionally published when I was 22 years old, and it was a terrible experience. It was a vanity press, totally got taken advantage of. I was just devastated by that whole situation. So I did not write fiction. I abandoned fiction for 10 years and had like four nonfiction books traditionally published. And at the end of 2016, I got an idea for a novel and I always wanted to return to fiction. And this book came to me in like one, I mean, I just saw it from start to finish. I was in an airport. I witnessed this horribly abusive mother-daughter exchange I wanted to write about these two real characters. So I went home. I was working three jobs. I quit two of them, and I gave myself Mm -hmm. eight weeks to write this novel, and I wrote it in four weeks and landed landed an agent, uh, got the book deal, went to auction. It got a movie deal. Like, it was was kind of like this this dream come true type thing. But I sold a two-book deal to start, and then they gave me another two-book deal. So I had four, a four-book deal with only one book written. So I was on a book-a-year schedule, and when it came time to write the second book, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to write about. I mean, I, I, this, yeah. this first book, Not Her Daughter, just came to me all at once. And, like, so every book since then has been has been a bit forced in that, like, oh, God, I've got to come up with this, this story now. So the second one was very piecemeal. It went through a bunch of different drafts. Um, mm. It The storyline changed a lot. Um, but characters always come to me, and the plot usually comes to me first. And so, like, with the third one, I actually, this, until I find you, I kept getting nightmares about hearing a baby crying, going into the room, picking them up, and realizing that this baby is not mine. And it would not leave me alone, this image and this nightmare. And I, I couldn't figure out how to make it work with a sighted individual. And then I was talking to my editor, and we, we discussed, like, the vision-impaired angle. And that just, like, boom, like, set, <laughs> set the stakes. And I was able to write this book. But the version that I wrote was much more 
like mystery, thriller, action, and with just like a few weeks to spare, my editor was like, great, this hits all the the marks. Now I want you to start over and I want you to like dig deeper and do better. So I had to completely write until I find you in a very short span of time. And then with Secrets of Our House, that also went through several iterations. So it's, it's been very um, collaborative along the way. Like when you have deadlines, when you know you have to get your book out, it's a very different experience versus that first book where I was just hit with inspiration and like that book kind of wrote itself. So I'm still trying to kind of get back to that, just being struck by lightning, no deadlines, no pressure type feeling um, going forward because I think creatives work really well when they have some freedom to play. Well, I, I my new book is out. A lot of people like Amazing. it. And some people don't. It's called Population Always. Zero. It was supposed to be, the title was supposed to be The World Without People, and the publisher, it's an independent publisher, changed it to stories about the end of the world. I created worlds that no one in their right mind would want to live in. I get criticized because I created the world, but no research. I closed my eyes and I said, what would the world look like with dead dead, dead uh, trees and dead wood and, and just a dense forest? What would it look like without sun? What would it look like if you were covered mm-hmm. in ice? What about a world that's just desert? And a whole bunch of worlds. And I, I just made it up. And then I invited a dead person to come mm-hmm. back and experience the world. Then I invited somebody to come back and experience all of, all of them. And I said, what would you do if you lived in my world? Would you wake up and be more amenable and start understanding what we're going through in this one? That was the purpose of the book. Most people didn't get it. It's 76 pages. I've gotten some five-star reviews and some four, and I'm getting penalized because it's only 76 pages, which I don't think is right. I love that, And then there are some (laughs) trolls out there that just rated the book one and two stars because they didn't read it. So... Population mm. Zero is, is everywhere. So where can we find out more about you and your work? And are you going to do another one with Partners in Crime? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, They're the best. Yeah, you can They're find the best. out. They are the best. I love Partners in Crime. Um, you can find out just about me as an author at reafry.com. That's R-E-A-F-R-E-Y.com. And then my company where I help writers, we have a weekly podcast. Um, is Rightway, W-R-I-T-E-W-A-Y-C-O.com, so rightwayco.com, um, and all the all the info is there. Well, I hope I get to read the next one, and if you can of do course. another one. I'm on, my, 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 my book is on tour with, um, this week, and I have two showcases, they it. said, coming, and, and I've got some interesting reviews, and I'm going to get oh, a few more reviews, all? and you yes. know, I developed yep. a thick skin, it's okay, I don't care. Yeah, um, me too. <laughs> but everybody, this is this is a world that's messed up, very messed up. So I've been saying this every at the end of every show. One small ask: be wise, wear a mask wherever you go. Don't walk out, and be very, very careful. And if you're going to travel, make sure you don't get too close to people. <laughs> Seriously, you got to be careful in this world. But thank you so much. Everybody have Thank a great so day. Much. I'm going to post your review right now with 20 stars. Everybody have a great day oh. and bye. Thank you.